welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're thrilled that you've taken some time to be with us today for uh, an exciting episode of Talking Whitetails. You know, this is a great time of year. Here we are in the middle of July. Uh, I'm telling you, here in Pennsylvania, it's hot, it's humid, and it is hairy out there in the woods. I was out this weekend uh, doing some trail cams and uh, riding my side-by-side a little bit, and it is just so thick. Uh, it's green everywhere, and the wildlife is really active. I got bears on my camera. I got deer on my camera, and I had just last night was one of those nights where the fields were absolutely full of whitetails. Um, some nice bucks out there, lots of does, um, and the guy that we have for today's show is. Uh, I can't think of anyone better to talk about whitetails with, uh, which is probably good because he's my whitetails columnist. So, Jason, uh, you'll be happy to know that I'm satisfied with your uh, bona fides. That's Mr. Jason Snavely, whitetails columnist at Peterson's Bowhunting, and probably more important, uh, the owner and founder of Drop Tine Wildlife Consulting. Jason, with that introduction, welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Hey, Christian. Thanks for having me back. Boy, I tell you what, that's a heck of an intro. I've, I've been sitting in my office since 5.30 a.m. this morning working, and uh, nothing real exciting, just kind of working. But, uh, man, you got me all excited. I want to get out in the field. Well, this is this is really the time of the year when it starts to get exciting looking ahead to the season. I don't know about you. Um, being in the deer business, you probably never stop. Uh, for me, I kind of take a hiatus between turkey season and about the 4th of July. And I literally went out... Uh, I think the 4th was on a Wednesday this week. So I went out that weekend after the 4th, like that Saturday, and got all my trail cams out. Of course, I'm a high-tech redneck now, so I've got several of these cellular uh, cameras. So I've got two, actually, I've I've got a Moultrie cellular cam that's a standalone unit, and I've got, uh, I got my hands on one of these Cutty back cutty link systems so i've got another sure. setup where i've got one of those cameras is cellular and then there's four other ones that use radio signals to send the pictures back to that one so i literally have six <laughs> different six different cameras out in the woods that are all feeding pictures to my phone and like every time i hear my phone beep i'm like you know what's there what's there and uh I'm telling you what we've the deer numbers are tremendous in my area. Um, they have been, I guess, for the last several years. But this year is no exception. I'm seeing some pretty good young bucks, a couple, you know, bucks that look like they might be shooters. And you know what I'm seeing a lot of is bears. We've got a lot of bears in my area this year, Jason, and a couple pretty big ones, like the ones that when you see on your camera, you're like, I don't really know if I want to walk to my stand in the dark <laughs> if that thing is out there. But it might actually be a pretty good year for bear hunting because 
as you know, a, f- a fellow Pennsylvanian, they've expanded bear hunting opportunities this year. Right. And with the, the number of bears that I'm seeing on the camera and the longer seasons that they're going to offer, maybe this is the year I actually end up tagging a bear, too. Well, man, you hit on some good topics there. And I, yeah, we will be sure to remind you that, that you uh, shared with all of us that you have so many deer this year when you're sitting in the stand sending out those facebook messages that you're not seeing anything so we'll, we'll bring that back up later but i would agree with you there's a lot of deer there's a lot of bears you know i don't know if you knew this or not but you know i love grown deer i don't really hunt hunt them as much anymore uh, i like to guide my kids on hunts but black bear hunting for me is an addiction and people don't realize this as i travel into canada to hunt bears with big skulls but black bear you know our black bear population here is, is the productivity is absolutely through the roof and everyone, including the Canadians, are jealous of the hide that we have on our bears. And, you know, we had a, I figured he was just a smidgen over 300 pounds the other night, Maya. We've got a great Pyrenees who was charged with protecting the goats and the chickens. And uh, I heard that uh, that bark, you know, when you hear your dog bark and you just, you know, it's not a, a raccoon or a fox. And I was actually working on my laptop at quarter after 11 and my wife yelled at me and said, you got to check that out. That's 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 not a squirrel so i went out and there's a good sized bear um, looking through the fence at one of our goats and uh you know i've noticed a lot more in the dumpster this year so for sure and i know one nine-year-old hunter who's excited about the expansion of the pennsylvania bear hunting uh, my daughter she's she has not killed a black bear yet but of all the animals i offer her in north america she she tells me that a big black bear is her number one yeah, it uh, they are very interesting animals, and uh, you know, you mentioned first of all, you know, boy, we're really getting down rabbit trails to start, but this is this is great. <laughs> first of all, the dogs definitely have what I call the bear bark. Okay, um, oh, yeah. you know Goldie, and uh, you know if Goldie sees a rabbit. Uh, in the yard or something like that she'll bark at it a little bit but there's a certain bark that's very distinct when she smells or sees a bear she will go on high alert for like an hour and just run around the yard and she you you literally can't calm her down or get her in so uh, yeah i don't know what it is about dogs and bears but dogs don't like bears <laughs> and no, I, uh I, yeah i tell you one one bear that doesn't like dogs he uh he was a good-sized bear, and it took him a while to get going. You know, bears can move, and uh, just about the time I hit both of them with a light, uh, I noticed there was probably eight to ten feet distance between the rear end of the black bear and the nose of my dog. And it's a good thing that bear didn't stop. That dog was—he was coming hard, and uh, you know, ironically, he dropped down over the hill. Obviously, he wasn't that frightened, and he proceeded to tear my dumpster apart. So I, I went down and had a little meeting with him, and. He finally walked off, but you're right. <laughs> they, but, you know, you, you hit you hit trail cams, too. I was kind of chuckling there when you talked about the trail cams. You know, I wrote Chapter 1 of the, the book that the QDMA published on trail cams many, many years ago. And uh, I often laugh because my, my t- the topic of our chapter, Rich Howell was the co-author with me, Rich owns trailcampro.com. Uh, but the uh, the topic or title was, was trail camera technology. And, and these days I wouldn't know a lick about that topic. But fresh out of college, you know, we were working on research projects where we were using 
you probably don't remember the active units where you had you actually had two units. Um, some of them you had three separate units to to hook up the trees. Um, but you know, I get a kick thinking about all of the times we used duct tape and electrical tape, and we took show cams apart. And man, it's come a long way. It sure has. I mean, we're pretty spoiled now when. You know, the only time that I really am going to need to go back and touch those cameras is when my daily report that comes into my email tells me that the batteries are low, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> and in the meantime, it's, it's pretty cool to watch these bucks, you know, grow and develop and, and then see if they hang around, you know, come yeah. come uh, mid-September when that velvet is gone and then they start to just, quite frankly, act more like the bucks that drive us nuts all fall than these sure. dummies that we see in the fields all summer. And I always say, you know, if you, let me, if you let me hunt these things in August, I could kill a good one every year. <laughs> if you make me wait until <laughs> October, I don't know. Yeah, but, there's uh, people around my neighborhood who, who actually act on that. <laughs> well, but, uh, you, know, you know, you you were talking about you know, the, the technology of you know, like the cutty links and the, the the wireless cameras that, uh, of course, keep you awake all night, sending you messages. Um, you know that that technology's been around a long time, and I can remember being in undergrad school, and uh, you know there were some researchers using very very crude versions of that technology. Um, you know, trap hogs at night and, you know, that told them when they needed to go out and, of course, annihilate the hogs. But, I um, mean, you know, I, I was pretty anxious for that technology to come down in price because, you know, for me as a, as a deer guy, a deer biologist, I'm interested in the way deer behave without us, without our presence, right? So, you know, you talked about seeing these immature bucks all the time and even middle-aged three-year-old bucks are, you know, pretty easy to see easy to grow but once you get to that four and a half to seven and a half year old uh cohort it yeah which we don't have a lot of those we we don't have a lot of those in pennsylvania to begin with i'm sorry what was that we don't have a lot of those in pennsylvania to begin with well we we don't have a surplus of them but we we've got more than we think we do but you know everything we do from that side by side you mentioned in the the intro to uh, just driving around. I mean, they cue off of us, right? They they know what's going on. They've been around for four or five seasons, and I I don't like to be in the woods at all. Um, I, I use other cameras as well, actually a security system to uh, basically keep an eye on the borders. And I'd be lying if I didn't admit to having them on scrapes and uh, other other tree stand sites. But uh, yeah, the use of cameras has really allowed deer nuts like me to uh, kind of stretch our imagination well you know we could probably do a whole episode about trail cameras but that isn't why <laughs> I actually invited you on here today for those of you who are listening who also subscribe to the magazine uh, you know that um, Jason has been writing some 
really interesting columns about a new paradigm in food plotting. And uh, as an aside, for those of you who are listening who don't subscribe to the magazine, shame on you. You need to go to bowhuntingmag.com and sign up for a subscription. It's only $8 for a year, and you can get print or digital or I think for like 10 or $11, you can get both. So that's my shameless plug. And uh, But Jason, you have been sort of, you know, actually said uh, right before we started the show today, I think your column is the most fascinating content in the magazine. And I sincerely mean that, and I'm not just blowing smoke at you. And the reason I say that, probably as the editor of the magazine, is because, um, not that we don't have a lot of really good content, right, in Peterson's bow hunting. But most of the stuff deals with archery and bow hunting from a perspective that I'm probably more familiar with. And so for me to tell you that I find your column particularly fascinating, it's because um, probably it's more di- your content is more different than the other stuff that I'm dealing with generally editing for the magazine. And what I mean by that is I'm not a deer biologist and I'm not up on the latest research and you're bringing me, you're bringing me stuff where I feel like every month when I sit down and edit your column, I'm actually learning something and I'm, I'm actually finding myself enjoying that learning process as I go through your material and I hope that our readers are too. And one of the things that you have been talking about uh, here in the last few issues is uh, something that you've termed regenerative wildlife agriculture. And that sounds like a 50 cent you know, term, uh, but really what it boils down to is trying to uh, do food plots and manage properties in a way that not only enhances the deer herd, makes your property more attractive to the deer herd, but is good for the environment at the same time. And that really resonates with me, Jason, because, you know, yes, as a as a bow hunter, I want to kill a good buck. Uh, you know, I want to put meat in the freezer. But really, deeper than all that, as a sportsman, I think of myself, or at least I like to think of myself, as a steward of the environment, right? That I'm actively participating in, sure. in in the management of, of wildlife and that I have a connection with the land and maybe a, a bit of a keener uh, a sense of it than somebody who you know whose main hobby is playing video games does right and so so I really want to feel like yes I want to enjoy my sport I want to be a successful hunter but I also want to leave the world, a little better than I found it, and and that's a lot of what what you're doing. So, boy, that's a pretty broad intro. <laughs> well, why don't we step back? Wow. Why don't we step back as we start our discussion on this, and just first of all, just define what is regenerative wildlife agriculture, and why does the average bow hunter care? Yeah, that's good. And you'll have to steer me away from some of the science. You know, a good friend of mine listened to that last podcast I did with you. And uh, so what do you think? You know, t- take a listen. This is good stuff. He, he had been asking me, this is a high school buddy, just got into food plots and had been asking about some of the stuff. And he said, man, I tell you, I'm impressed. I'm intrigued. But, boy, you can talk. How come you never talked that much in high school? 
So it, it's most definitely the uh, the most interesting thing to me right now, and it's it's really the culmination of uh, two and a half to three years of just delving into this topic. And um, you know, I had some some personal health issues, nothing serious, but uh, Lyme disease and, and associated tick-borne illness um, that led to gut dysfunction, and you know, just really learning about all that. And uh, so it makes complete sense for me. But I will back up and say, first of all, thank you for the, uh, the kind comments. Those are good to hear and rare to hear from you. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, regenerative, that term regenerative, I think, is key. You know, you hear people talk about preserving or conserving. And I think those are great terms. But regenerative to me is the key. Why would we want to conserve or preserve something that is currently in total disarray or dysfunction? So regenerative agriculture looks to basically farm in nature's image or biomimicry is is one of these kind of uh, recent terms being thrown around. And what does that mean? That really just means that we look to, to nature on how to deal with all of these things, all of these frustrations that we deal with in food plots. And I'll just I'll throw the word out there. It's, you know, food plots, I have nothing against that terminology. But I felt like there was a, we, you know, you mentioned paradigm shift. There's absolutely a huge paradigm shift. And I'm going to say a lot of negative things. And I'm not really a negative person. I'm a, an optimist. And I like to think outside the box. But, you know, we have done a lot of dysfunctional or or conducted a lot of dysfunctional farming agricultural practices. So, you know, every time I mention food plots, I feel like it's, it's not a fully conclusive term. I felt like there needed to be some new terminology. So, you know, you think about food plotting in general and most of us, and I think I said this in, in one of the columns, you know, most of us did not grow up as farmers. Uh, many of us who are food plotting now maybe didn't even grow up in the country, right? So, you know, who did we lean on and learn from, uh, to, you know, when we started to, to read soil samples or choose seed or uh, prepare a seed bed? And we looked to the farmers, right? And I was no different than that. You know, I understood biology. I understood deer, um, had the field experience in managing deer, but I didn't understand, you know, all this chemistry involved in the soil uh, test results. I didn't understand really the mechanical aspect of, you know, how many horsepower tractor paired with what plow and what disc and call the packer. And, and obviously that goes on and on. So we all learn from farmers, but I think it's time at this point, and, and you threw out some good, some good points there. And I wrote down a few of them, but you know, I think it's time that we change our aesthetic perception of what a food plot looks like. And we can es- expand on that as far as you want to expand on it. But this is something that I've been talking to my clients about. Um, you know, let's, let's change the way that we perceive what a food plot should look like. Now, you mentioned health. Um, to me, it's funny, a lot of this stuff came from researching my own physical health when I was preparing for a sheep hunt in the Northwest, Terri- Northwest Territory, sheep and caribou hunt. Um, I quickly realized that I was also dealing with what I felt was Lyme-like symptoms at the time and going through the plethora of antibiotics and all the high dollar um, intravenous 
methodologies that they use now to, to supposedly boost and, and uh, revamp or revitalize your immune system. None of that really worked for me. Some of it was kind of a heroic thing where it worked for a few months or a couple weeks. But, uh, you know, the, the soil is kind of like the gut of, of our ecosystem as, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I think it demands a, a greater look. And I think it's time that we, like I said, sort of shift our, our opinions on what a food plot should look like. Yeah, I think that's a good setup. And, I, uh, you know, let me let me jump in here for a minute and kind of steer a little bit and then I'll throw it back to you. You mentioned the idea that we all sort of learn from farmers, right? Because if you think about it, the way that the popularity of food plots exploded over the last 20 years, what it really did, right, was everyone who either owned or had access to some hunting land we all decided that we wanted to be like miniature farmers, right? So whether you had just sure. whether you just had an ATV and you got a little disc that you could drag behind that, or whether you had a tractor or you had access to maybe borrow the farmer's tractor or something like that, we we took you know and and just adopted their practices. And one of the things that you touched on. Uh, is how it all grows out of like modern, what I'll call quote unquote modern commercial agriculture. And by modern, you know, basically what we're saying is post-World War II. Well, what happened, mm -hmm. you know, since post-World War II agriculture? We've gone, we went to this system where you pretty much look at any large-scale farming uh, operation in the country that's not organic and you have an operation that is very very dependent on large-scale application of chemical herbicide and chemical pesticide and now I think as a society you know, certainly we've seen a big rise in the popularity of organic. We've seen a big rise in awareness of what things like, you know, Roundup, which is probably the poster child. There's a million different <laughs> chemicals, right, that we use in agriculture, but Roundup tends to be the one that gets the most attention. And of course, there's been a particular lawsuit uh, regarding Roundup and potential links to cancer that has received quite a bit of um, publicity. But, but basically, you know, where I'm going with all this is that I think that there's a growing sense by society at, at large, you know, that maybe this hasn't been such a good idea for, for our health as people. But then when you drill down into the farming community and the hunting community, maybe we have a little bit, you know, deeper understanding of this or deeper interest at any rate, that there's also a growing number of farmers and hunters who are realizing, yeah, maybe, maybe this hasn't also, not only is it not good for us, maybe it's not really that good for the soil. Maybe it's not really that good for all the critters that live on the landscape and we're realizing that maybe we've done a lot of damage to sure. the environment as a result of this whether it's you know the huge dead zone in the gulf of mexico because of all the fertilizer that's washing down the mississippi or whether it's the reduced um fertility of our soils and and so with that being said you know really 
uh, this awakening is, is just as the maybe some of the bad things that we've done food plotting has grown out of the agricultural community I think some of these things that we're doing differently now are also coming out of the agricultural community because there's more people that were looking for a better way and, and they've started to adopt mm-hmm. some new practices and then you guys have started to borrow that in, in the, the wildlife management world too right sure Sure. Yeah. And I, and again, you hammer a lot of things there, a lot of great topics, but, you know, before we start to uh, really uh, beat up the farmer, um, you know, let's, let's first say that, yeah, farmers, I, I personally believe, you know, without farmers, our country wouldn't be what it is today. And, you know, I think they've always done, even, you know, pre, uh, I was just reading about Thomas Jefferson and some of the things that he did in his gardening and, and farming applications. And it's, it mirrors exactly what we're doing right now, ironically. But, you know, farmers, I think, have always done the best with what they have and what they know, and certainly never, uh, most of them anyway, never intended to uh, completely destroy our ecosystem. But, you know, I think you, you mentioned, you know, Roundup or glyphosate, and, yeah, a lot of these things, I, I, I do think, I'm going to throw stones, but I most definitely live in that glass house, right? So I've been guilty of all of this, but I think we're taking it a lot of things too far, right? We're, we're getting out of, out of hand, out of control with some of this stuff. And, you know, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with, with uh, a responsible use of a tool like a herbicide. And, you know, sometimes in my writings and um, as I'm talking and, you know, uh, given a presentation, people, it sounds like I'm anti-herbicide. You know what? Someday I may. I reserve the right to change my mind. But I think it's the overutilization of the synthetic fertilizers, the pesticides, the herbicides. You know, we, we have that more is better mentality. And I think that is leading to a lot of things, a ripple effect, um, you know, negative cascading effects that we, uh, you might hear about in the news, such as the lawsuit and, you know, maybe the health of our children which most definitely seems to be deteriorating more and more as we bring on more of these, these new technologies. But, you know, you mentioned organic farming, and I kind of want to circle back because I didn't really touch on um, too, you know, too much of what makes regenerative ag so different. You know, I, uh, I, I've had the pleasure of working with some really intelligent regenerative ag leaders and pioneers, soil scientists, and one of them pointed out to me, and we have since, you know, so, sort of done this over and over again, that when you visit these farms, these agrochemical farms, the one that you're, you know, the ones you're talking about where there's giant pallets and totes full. I mean, they're not buying Roundup or, or chemical by the, the gallon. They're buying it by the tote, you know, by the pallet. And in these agrochemical situations, you, you look at them and you just wonder how, how have we gotten to the point where we are relying on all these inputs and how can that really affect their bottom line and are they profiting? So you're right in the ag world, this is extremely important stuff. And although sometimes it gets sciencey, if it can impact your bottom line to the tune of six figures. And I've seen some large scale farmers, you know, saving a quarter of a million dollars a year by minimizing or eliminating synthetic inputs. So, you know, and I can remember one of these, one of these pioneers in the wildlife regenerative world who is now a good friend of mine said to me, you're going to have 
a major uphill battle with the wildlife food plot guys because they really don't have any skin in the game, right? Their, their cash crop is going into a deer or a turkey or a bear, and they're not necessarily running grain over the scale and getting paid. There's no payday. When really, you know, he, didn't, he didn't mean to say it that way, but you know, to us, there is a payday. And I think a sportsman, a hunter, can, can identify that in the results of the hunt. But, um, you know, having said that, a lot of these synthetic inputs are water-soluble, right? So we think we're eating organic. We think because we're eating venison that we're eating healthy. I mean, we're, you can look in any hunting publication or outdoor publication, and if you search back long enough through their files, you'll find articles that, you know, talk about the, the health factor of eating venison. Well, is it, is it really that healthy? It, it makes me wonder if we were to dig deeper with all these water-soluble chemicals. We, we've turned this thing into a chemistry experiment. And I think as a biologist, that's maybe my overriding theme in all of this is, wait a minute, let's get back to the fact that everything that goes on in nature is ecology. It's biology. Sure, there's some chemistry, but chemistry doesn't drive the system. Biology drives the system. And, you know, just to, to further drive that point, I'll let you kind of re-steer it. Um, you know, 90% of the nutrients that plants utilize in the cycle go through biology at one point in time or another. So we like to think, you know, we're throwing out a little bit of NPK, and you kind of have this visual, right, in your mind, the schematic that, you know, those pellets go down into the soil, the rain carries it down, and then the root absorbs it, and then it, the plant grows. It just doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, the biology in the system have to interact, and it's, if you're into terms, bioturbation would be the term, where they're consuming it, they're, they're pooping it, and they're cycling it so that the plants can utilize it. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of uh, things there. I just want to respond to one, and then we'll move we'll move more from the ph philosophical side of this discussion to more of the practical, and talk about you know sort of how this is impacting uh, how you do what you do. Uh, but you mentioned you know. Uh, water soluble all these things being water soluble and and you know the health benefits of venison i mean certainly uh you know a venison steak is healthier than uh than say a beef steak from the perspective of you know it has less fat less cholesterol uh but i i hear what you're saying as far as um i'm not under any delusions right that the whitetails uh that i kill and and eat and feed to my family, whether they're taken, you know, here in Pennsylvania or, or out, out in Illinois where I hunt or, or in Kentucky where I hunt. These are not organic deer because every single one of them is chowing down on corn and soybeans and other crops that are grown with the use of herbicide and pesticide, right? And so I'm sure that if we took, uh, if I went to my freezer right now and grabbed a venison roast and sent it to a laboratory, um, it certainly wouldn't shock me if they said we have detected, you know, traces of various chemicals inside of that meat. There's, how do you escape it? I don't think you can, unless, unless you, you know, you can't. Um, 
so yeah, I just tell myself that it's probably healthier than the the, the, the meat that I can buy uh, at, at Walmart. But but no, is it organic? No, I, I don't think it's organic. Um, so from that, let's jump to the practical. So we've talked about you know how. Um, Okay, let's let's compare and contrast to borrow mm-hmm. like a, a tenth or eleventh grade uh, <laughs> class. That compare and contrast, you know. Uh, historically, when we do food plotting, we would talk about. I'm going to use another term, right? Monoculture. Okay, mm-hmm. because I know this is something you're going away from. Monoculture would just basically be like you have a whole field. It's one. It's one kind of crop, right? So, like a big giant cornfield or a big giant bean field is a monoculture. And in food plotting, we kind of would do the same thing, right? We'd plant a whole field, or it would just be clover, or it would just be sorghum, or it would just be brassica. And typically, we would start out, right, by hooking up our sprayer, or if we were doing a poor man's plot, right, we'd put our backpack sprayer on and we'd go out there. The first thing we'd do is we'd use uh, a weed killer to clear all the vegetation, and then we'd till up the soil and we'd sow our seed, or we'd till up the soil and put down our fertilizer and sow our seed, and we'd, and we'd, we'd grow that crop. And... Sure. That's how that's how we've always done it, right? That's typically what we think of in terms of putting in a food plot. But now you're starting to do things differently where you're doing, uh, I don't know if you call it a polyculture or if there's another term for it, but you're, you're, ta- you're, you're basically creating your food plots by putting in like uh, a cover crop as like a precursor. And then you're, sure. you're doing this whole roller crimper thing where you're then just <laughs> crimping this cover crop. You're basically using a giant, it looks like a steamroller with blades on it. You're driving your steamroller with blades on it around in the field and knocking down all these cover crops, basically just letting them turn into a, a, a a mulch mat, if you will, drilling mm. your drilling your next crop right into the ground on top of these things and letting them grow up. I mean, this is completely different than how wow. we've done things. So that's the really layman's terms. I mean, I've probably butchered oh, your entire perfect. program, but explain to me why don't you take me take us through right how you did plots traditionally? Because, like you said, you're guilty of all this stuff. If you want to use the term guilty, yeah, you know, t- t- tell us tell us how Jason Snavely, the professional deer manager wildlife biologist that people are paying money right there there would have been a difference in what i paid you to come to my property five years ago and tell me to do versus what i would pay pay you to come to my property and tell me to do today right so so literally give me an example of how you did it and now give me an example of how you do it and what was the metamorphosis that brought you from a to b wow you may have to Keep me on track there. That's uh, first of all, I'm impressed with your understanding and your your keen observation of the roller crimper and other techniques. A lot of folks have likened the roller crimper to a giant twizzler, and that's what it looks like because it has that chevron pattern to it. But uh, yeah, so no, everything that you mentioned as far as you know, going out and doing a complete burn down, uh, meaning not not with fire but with the chemical where you would kill all of the existing vegetation. And then you oh, well, and just and just just to throw in real quick, that's exactly what you see the farmers do all spring. Sure, I mean it's exactly what they do. You talk about the bird. You see a farmer, right, is out in a field because in the spring all the weeds start to come in last year's cornfields and bean fields, and then they go out there and that's what they do. They spray the entire field with Roundup. Over the course of the next ten days, you see it turn completely brown, and then they go in there mm-hmm. and plant their seed. So anyway, continue. Mm-hmm. Well, well it's, and it's easy. It's certainly easier. Um, you know, but had they 
had they thought ahead, and again, you know, we, we talk about these, you know, the initial uh, modern agrochemical techniques we've learned from farmers, you know, being bad, terrible. You mentioned the term cover crop, which is huge in a year like this, where they've got a lot of prevent planning going on. You know, the, the rain and the floods, everything kind of kept farmers out of their fields. So we, we were able to sort of steal, right? Uh, I don't know who said it. I'm stealing somebody's quote here, but ironically, uh, some of the best ideas are stolen. So, so we've been able to adapt and learn from these regenerative farmers, um, and, and they've got a huge head of steam moving forward. And actually, great big old food companies like General Mills, and there's a whole slew of them. Even, even Wrangler Jeans are on board with these regenerative guys. So yeah, everything you mentioned, you know, if, if you were to roller crimp the right crop, I've had people here on the farm, oh, two, three days of, uh, you know, after post roller crimping, you know, maybe it was 85, 90 degrees like it's been lately. And you could look at a freshly roller crimped field if you didn't see how it was terminated. And it looks exactly like you nuked it with a broad spectrum herbicide like glyphosate, right? So it's, it's really kind of cool. Um, it took some forethought, some planning to get to that point. But no, so everything, you know, everything you said is perfectly right. Um, you know, you spray it and kill it. Yeah, obviously, everybody talks about seed and soil contact. So you have to now get in there and till the soil in some manner, whether you plow, disc, or, you know, however you do it, you, you, you've got to break up that soil. Um, and and this, this is probably one of the most destructive practices currently going, in my opinion. So, you know, at that point, obviously, you would plant the seed and, you know, you're looking at a complete, what we call a naked seedbed or a completely bare uh, you know, field where the soil is eroding, both by, you know, both through wind and, and rain. Um, and, and then obviously the plant grows. And, you know, you mentioned monoculture. Yeah, we, we are getting away from monocultures. Um, and, and I shouldn't say we have gotten away from my I've planted a monoculture in, in two, two growing seasons now, um, unless it's been for a trial to find out what variety we want to use in a blend. But for deer, we have not been doing that. So what we call them, and I, and I think the term, I'm going to give give my good friend Gabe Brown, who's the author of Dirt to Soil, credit, <clears throat> only because I've never seen or heard the term biological primer used prior to Gabe. <clears throat> and that really hit it home for me as a biologist, because this is what we're looking to do, right? We're looking to prime the soil. <clears throat> excuse me, and really get that soil going back to the way nature intended, not, not to be proverbial here, but so, you know, that's kind of the old way of doing things is, is to get into that monoculture setting. You know, when you go back to the eighties and the nineties and you had this, this big battle, this big race of, of the food plot companies, and I don't need to mention them. You all know them, you know, the, the common popular companies. These are guys who I worked with closely as I worked with clients who demanded uh, top-notch products and superior products. And really, quite frankly, most of them don't care about the cost. They just want a product that's going to outperform the neighbor's products and that's going to attract and hold as many deer as possible. So, you know, we've gotten into this race of clover, 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 and clover is a fantastic plant. Um, just like potatoes are fantastic for us to eat in moderation, right? Or the same can be said for just about anything other than vegetables and fruits. So, you know, the way that we're doing it now is we're planting a diversity 
we call them cocktail blends, um, a diverse biological primer, a cocktail blend that seeks to, and if you, if you picture, um, and this is the, this is going back to my sort of my call or my, I guess my challenge for us to look at, at the aesthetics of food plots in a different manner. You know, I've, I get visitors here to the farm all the time and they say, wow, that's an interesting looking field. It's usually not a negative. It's not a positive. It's just an observation of, wow, you know, look, what, what is that flower or, um, you know, what, what's going on with that field? They, they notice something different, but they're not real sure what it is. So let me give you an example. Uh, we, we've, I've developed along with, with a lot of these guys in the cover cropping world and regenerative wildlife or regenerative agriculture uh, movement. I've, re, I've developed a, a series of blends that saw, it really sought a couple of things. And I'm not plugging my blends. These blends can certainly be, you can mix them yourself or, you know, anybody can make them. It took an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of thought and trial and error and, and just, you know, um, kind of tweaking things. But we are seeking what I call no-till. So it's NT. So, so we don't want to till the ground or, or disturb the soil in any way. Um, zero synthetics, so zero S. That means no synthetic inputs. <clears throat> so in other words, we're utilizing the natural organic, if you will, but the natural cycle of nutrients in the soil ecosystem. So no-till, zero synthetics and no herbicides, no insecticides, no pesticides. So in order to do that, it sounds like a relatively simple concept, but in order to do that, we had to really delve into the biology of how nature did this thing on her own, because believe it or not, nature was able to self-regulate, self-organize, and self-heal without us. Uh, I guess that depends on your political opinions, but um, or, or maybe your uh, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, nature was able to do this before us as a biologist and ecologist. I firmly believe that. So once we realized that, hey, wait a minute, we don't need all these synthetic, expensive, by the way, synthetic fertilizers. We don't need all these caustic and, and gut damaging, soil damaging chemicals. And we certainly should not be destroying the soil organic matter and just the overall quality or health of the soil, things started to change. And one thing that, you know, we've learned from, you know, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren has done an enormous amount of work on pest insects, right, versus beneficial or neutral insects. And we start to realize that, hey, wait a minute, when we ignore or set aside this agrochemical, here we go back to modern conveniences of spraying things and killing things that way, and we think about using a biological control. Um, there's 1,700, Dr. Lundgren reminds us, there's 1,700 beneficial insects for every one single pest insect that there is. So how does this practically sort of motivate us to create a blend that can promote this biological activity? And I came out with a blend called Pollinator Preserve. And again, you can buy any, any type of pollinating blend you prefer. But, you know, I looked at 56 to 59 different species and varieties. And these are plants that attract pollinators that are the predators of the primary insects that get onto my soybeans or get onto my cowpeas or corn or you name it. 
So it's a completely different thought process. It's certainly not as simple as mixing up a chemical concoction and just spraying it on. But I think what we'll find moving forward is, um, and you mentioned the term earlier, stewardship, you know, stewards. I disagree with the wildlife or with the regenerative ag folks who say, boy, Jason, you know, it's, a, it's hard for us over here on this side, but it's going to be impossible for you. You know, fortunately, my customers or the people I'm trying to educate are stewards, right? They're conservationists, they're hunters, they're anglers, they're people who, um, they, they, you know, contrary to what some of the anti-hunting uh, segment tries to promote, these people don't, you know, they're spending money to uh, help wildlife proliferate. So I know I got off on a, a lot of stuff there. Um, you know, there, there are six principles I'll go over real quickly and we, you can expand or delve into any of them, you know, as you wish. Um, some of these principles were developed by uh, like Ray Archuleta, the soil guy, uh, as many know him and, and Gabe Brown and some others. But, you know, number one is limit disturbance and that could be physical or chemical. So when you plow, when you disc, that's physical, chemical, obviously, when you, when you nuke it with, with chemicals. Um, number two is to, is to maintain soil, a constant soil armor. And, and we can talk more about this. You just mentioned uh, that amazing soil armor that I'm able to lay down with my roller crimper. Number three is diversity. And you touched on that. You know, uh, you won't find a monoculture on my property more because you just won't find a monoculture in nature. There's never a monoculture unless someone has planted it. So my fields now contain legumes, brassicas, grasses. And, you know, the grasses don't have to be a ryegrass or the, the bad grasses that a lot of food plotters think of. You know, the cereal grains are grasses. So oats, rye, triticale, barley, they're grasses. And then obviously the forbs, which, you know, the, the, the conversation of what is a weed, right? We, should, we can get into that as well. Um, gosh, I used to be anti-weed to the point that I would run out to a field and pull one weed that was able to flip through the uh, chemical nuking, but, you know, uh, the forbs like plantain and chicory, and even you get into the, some of the wildflowers um, are fantastic for soil health and the wildlife love them. And then the fourth one is living root system. So, you know, you mentioned the fact that I plant, and a lot of farmers will plant a cover crop or a biennial. Maybe we plant them in the fall. Farmer may plant it after he harvests his grain. Those are coming back the following spring. Um, you know, a plant like cereal rye can actually be root active all winter long, right? So, you know, you see some of these farm fields just as the snow's melting and they're bright green. That's because that plant has been root active pretty much throughout the winter. Um, and the fifth one is animals, you know, to the regenerative uh, ag guys. Obviously, they incorporate livestock and cattle primarily, sheep, goats as well. Um, and then the sixth one is really just context, which I've got a couple stories on context and how we've adapted what some of the Australians are doing in some of their pastures to be able to do uh, and more, more so successfully implement this program that we've developed over the years. Well, you know, we, we probably, you know, don't have time to dive into every single thing, uh, you know, but... I would point out some things that you've shared in your columns that I think people will find fascinating. And um, for for instance, okay, by 
by uh, planning um, your cover crops and then your sort of food bearing, you know, I guess they're all food, but um, what I'm trying to say is if you're going to, say, put in some, some beans or things like that, um, say, in the, in the spring, you'll plant something in the fall that's complementary to that, and you know that essentially these plants that are in this mix that you're putting in are going to do things to the soil to put into the soil things that the next thing that you're planting are going to need and so that in doing that and complementing one another with your plantings you're providing those nutrients to those plants um, sort of um, naturally and you're reducing the amount of synthetic fertilizer that you need to put on the soil and so that is actually saving you money uh, the other thing uh, that I've picked up on from your columns, which you know you may want to touch on briefly, is this um, gentleman from the USDA uh, Ag Services who developed this new um, soil health test, and it's taking into account not just the the chemical composition of the soil and the pH of the soil, but it's actually looking at the microbial activity in the soil and the way that the various uh, bacteria that exist in the soil make the nutrients that are present more or less available to plants based on the amount of uh, microbial activity that's there. And by taking that into account, uh, they've also found that you, in many instances, um, can dramatically reduce the cost that you have in fertilizer because the nutrients are actually there. And tying it into something else that you said, basically by, by not tilling the soil, by not disturbing that soil, by not um, exposing you know, that top 12 inches uh, of topsoil to you know, to, to the elements, to the sun, to the air, uh, you're preserving that biological activity that's there and you are um, basically improving the fertility of that soil and then by, you know, using that roller crimper and having that uh, decaying organic matter on top, you're actually not only preserving what's there, but you're adding additional um, biomass into the soil and so you're, you're, you're improving things in the short term and you're also building greater soil health for the long term at the same time. So when you start to look at all these things holistically, Jason, it just makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and, and ultimately, the thing that really ought to be you know, the seller, if you will, the clincher for anybody who cares about their own health, the health of the environment, the health of these animals that we hunt is, you know, if you go to somebody, and I'm sure you do, you have this conversation with clients probably on an almost daily basis, uh, especially probably with a new prospective client is, you know, if you're on the phone or if you're meeting with somebody, if you look somebody in the eye and you say, now, what if I told you that I could show you how to, you know, provide some habitat enhancements for the deer on your property in a way that is not only going to cost you less, 
but it's going to be better for the deer, better for your property, and oh, by the way, the results that we can yield are gonna be just as attractive, if not more attractive to the deer than what your neighbor is doing with the conventional method, who would tell you no? Yeah, and, and I and not to interrupt you there, but th- there was a lot of good stuff that you mentioned, and this is probably a three-part podcast. But I will say this, and and, and clients who are paying want to know this all sounds great and tree hugger like, but how does this really work in the real world? I absolutely, and I'm glad this is recorded. I'm 110 percent confident that my property, which has has been under this management program for a few years now. At varying levels, the last two years has been pretty intense. No, no uh, pesticides, insecticides, no synthetic fertilizers. I absolutely believe that the deer know the difference through nutritive quality, nutrient density on my property. And really, literally, as they walk through the hedgerow and hit the neighbor's property, which is farmed by the largest farmer in the county, who is, you know, complete tillage chemical, uh, genetically modified, the whole nine yards. So, you know, you, you mentioned species complementariness, and this is something I talk about quite a bit. We are starting to learn, or actually we've known for quite a while, but we're starting to identify and really study this species complementariness idea, and that is that various plant species, believe it or not, have evolved to kind of have this relationship where they complement one another. And you know, this this maybe goes back to I, I follow some of these Facebook groups just because I like to see how my how the hunters and the food plotters are thinking. And I follow some of the food plot groups and it, it kind of pains me because I, you know, every time I jump on, obviously, you're, you're, you're kind of like the black sheep. Right. So you get abused. And I certainly uh, it's not the platform to educate, but it allows me to see what most of the food plotters are thinking, at least on Facebook. So everybody plants this monoculture clover plot and you got to understand the soil itself always wants to be at a carbon to nitrogen ratio of about 11 to 1 in that range so if you die or you shoot a deer and you you never find it everything in life kind of reverts back to that 11 to 1 carbon to nitrogen so when we're planting a monoculture of, of legumes we're pumping a lot of nitrogen too much of a good thing by the way into that soil so When we pump all that nitrogen into the soil, Mother Nature has to sort of balance out that ratio. And the way that she does that is by throwing a a plant that complements high nitrogen. So she'll probably look to a grass or a forb, which food plotters call weeds. And she'll say, hey, to heal this system, we need some more of these grasses. Now, any food plotter listening who has planted clover probably, I hope, just had an aha moment and thought, okay, this makes sense. Right? I'm, I'm overstimulating the soil with nitrogen, and it's pumping grass into the system. And then I'm taking a synthetic uh, or, or a chemical of some sort and, and spraying it, like clefidim or cytoxidim, and spraying it to kill the grasses. Right, And then I'm applying all this nitrogen. By the way, a little bit more isn't going to hurt. I want to have a good-looking plot to show these guys on Facebook. So I'm feeding these grasses with all this nitrogen. And then I'm trying, I'm spending money to spray and kill the very grasses that I'm trying to feed. So, you know, I'm a slow learner, right? So after years of working with clients and working on my own properties, you asked me earlier, how did I come to this conclusion that something needed to change? 
I bought a farm that was farmed for multiple generations. Soybeans and corn stood here when I looked at it. And the fields, you've been to the farm, the fields literally have rocks the size of your head. There's very little topsoil. Uh, well, there's probably no topsoil. I'll correct that. And I rolled out onto my one of my fields, as I often do, on my bad boy buggy and just looked at it one February and thought, that doesn't seem like a true biological system to me. The soil is exposed. Um, it just doesn't look healthy, right? So after a few months of this and talking to some clients, I thought to myself, okay, if Mother Nature is trying to throw more of these grasses into a food plot, what if we gave her what she wanted? What if we went in there with a grass by, by you know, plant physiology definitions and gave it, gave it what it wanted as soon as the soil temperatures hit 55, late winter, early spring, what would happen? And so we came out with, you know, different cool season grasses. And I've, uh, we've developed blends since then. This worked like a charm. And what we end up with, instead of grasses and other quote-unquote weeds, that tend not to be deer forages, which, by the way, it turns out a lot of these really are. Um, the field now might have barley and trit, triticale, or barley and oats, and all of the legumes, right? So but now we're, instead of a monoculture, you know, we're kind of playing with this carbon-nitrogen ratio, and, um, you know, one thing leads to another, and now we're actually blending based on your species complementariness comment, you know, 20, 30 different species. And yeah, some of them do have 50 some species. Um, do we think that's necessary? I don't know. I think someday we might, the scientists may nail down on what's called quorum sensing and find out that, you know what, we, we need at least seven or at least 12. But um, so, so that's kind of my touch on that. But, you know, you, you mentioned Haney and then you also mentioned this, you were, I think you were trying to mention the nutrient cycling, and you were talking about saving on fertilizer, and that's huge. That's enormous. I mean, I, I've saved thousands of dollars just this year alone, uh, which allowed me to fix my tractor. But you know, I, I didn't buy any synthetic fertilizers at all. So if you think about this, once you take the water out of a plant, and this is important, great, this is a great tidbit for camp this year. When you pull the water out of a plant, 97% of that plant is composed of two things that are absolutely free if we think about, think about it, and that's carbon and nitrogen. So we could pump nitrogen into the soil through legumes, and we could pump carbon, liquid carbon, pathway into the soil with plants. So it just makes complete sense. Now, going on to the Haney Health Test, so that, that's the column you were talking about in, in Peterson's there. Dr. Rick Haney uh, and his wife, Liz, have become good friends of mine, two very intelligent researchers. Uh, Dr. Haney didn't necessarily invent this idea, but he was the only human being in history to say, wait a minute. I'm looking at data that says only, are you ready for this number? 40% of the nitrogen dumped into the soil is utilized by a plant. So where's the other 60% going? Well, it's leaching in, you know, that dead zone you mentioned? It's, it's leaching into our water system. Mm -hmm. And then Dr. Haney took this a step further, which was actually research done and conducted by the Russians many, many years ago, and said, oh, I don't get it. These agrochemists were telling me, if I don't pump fertilizer into the system, my plants won't grow. In fact, my, my old 
fertilizer supplier who called me no less than four times and left a voicemail every time while I was on vacation has been hounding me is now also hounding some of my clients because he has their contact information saying, Jason is going to going to destroy your deer management program and you're not going to see any deer because you quit buying fertilizer. So Dr. Haney took it a step further and he said, okay, if the plants are actually growing and they're only utilizing 40%, where's this other 60% coming from? And that's when he went to the organic fraction of all of the major nutrients that plants need to grow. So, you know, that, that has absolutely changed the agricultural world, at least those who are open-minded and, and willing to think about it. And I could tell you, we have relied, you know, the conventional soil test is cheap. We still do it really just to compare and to have fun with it, but it tells you absolutely nothing. And I repeat, absolutely nothing that you can't get on the soil, on the Haney soil health test. Yeah, it, uh, you know, we kind of have to wrap it up because we've been talking about this <laughs> stuff for an hour, Jason. And Oh, really? Yes, the time flies when you're having fun. But I will, you know, I will sort of close it with this, okay? And uh, I'm going to make a prediction. And, you know, I don't mind being wrong. I don't mind being wrong, Jason, because I've been wrong before and I'll be wrong again. But I am confident in this that we are going to look back and this is why honestly okay I'm going to pat myself on the back for a minute this is why I'm glad that I have you working for me and giving this kind of information to the readers of Peterson's Bowhunting because you're not going to hear this just everywhere and no, I, am, no. I, am, I am convinced Jason that history will show that Jason Snavely and, and Drop Time Wildlife Consulting were on the cutting edge of a paradigm shift in the food plot property management landscape. And just I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. No, no, seriously. And I just don't have to tell you for that. And I, because the shift is coming. It's coming not only in our world it's coming in the commercial ag world you know it's funny mm -hmm. uh i i actually sent a text to one of my friends here around the house the other day because i drove by one of the larger farms in the neighborhood where i do a lot of my hunting and i looked up the hill and you can see all the fields along the road and it goes up the hill and it's normally uh, all uh, patches of corn and beans this entire farm mm -hmm. and I drove by this past week and I looked out and the entire farm was oats oats and I was like what in the world like <laughs> 150 acres of oats and I texted my friend and I said, what is going on with such and such's farm being all in oats? And he responded, they're shifting to organic farming and it's like a two or three year transition process and mm -hmm. they can't plant any corn or beans and so they're doing oats and I don't know what they're gonna be doing in the future, but the point is, this is a significantly sized 
farming operation in my area that is in the process of going through whatever process they have to go through and what they can plant and I'm sure the way that they manage those crops between now sure. and whenever they can get their certification to make that transition. Uh, well, as a, and I can tell you, I, you know, if I could hunt that property, I'd be thrilled. If I if I couldn't hunt that property, I wouldn't be thrilled. But <laughs> you know, going back to, and I've told you this before, growing up, Chuck Adams was my hero, and uh, you know, I, I can remember reading Peterson's bow hunting all, all throughout school, both in study hall and, and during math class. And I, you know, there are so many bow hunting magazines and, and other hunting publications, but you know, I, I'm surprised many times and honored and really pleased that you've provided this platform because I do believe, although this isn't anything I've uh, invented or, you know, I certainly enjoy, you know, pushing it and preaching it, but, you know, many, many civilizations have collapsed. And I know we didn't listen to the whole Mesopotamia spiel. I'm, I'm, my son just went through seventh grade and said, dad, this guy's the worst teacher. So boring. He talks about Mesopotamia. And I had to laugh because none of us learn from history, right? So what do we do? We repeat it. If you really study this stuff, and I understand it's hard to read about sometimes, but there have been so many civilizations that have caused themselves to go defunct because they've completely destroyed their soil ecosystem. And I think that's why the regenerative ag movement has picked up so much steam. And it's not because the government is forcing them to. Actually, the government penalizes them. They're slowly trying to change this, but they have always penalized them for planting cover crops, believe it or not. But I think now to the consumers, the guys, guys and girls like us, and I know your better half is a healthy consumer. When we demand healthy foods for our kids and ourselves, it sort of catches you know, the attention of these people. And I, and I think of these large companies, and I, and I think we're going to see that in the wildlife world more, world more and more. Um, it certainly is not, has not been easy. I've, I've taken a lot of shots. Uh, I actually stay off of Facebook anymore because it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite abusive. But um, I, I agree with you. I do think it's going to catch on. It will take some time in the wildlife world. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. At least being a part of the process is a blast. Well, it is. And, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to take some shots. Um, because cause when you're on the right side of history, you know, it's, it's worth it. And I do believe that this is going to be the right side. So if people are interested in learning more, you guys need to check out the Drop Tine uh, Wildlife website, the Drop Tine Seed Company website. And if you're really geeked out on this, even though you just told everyone you don't go on the Facebook, you actually have a Facebook group for regenerative wildlife agriculture, Jason. Unless you're telling me, yeah. unless you're telling me you've shut that down. No, I did not, and I will not. And that was created because there was a surprising number of folks out there who are both customers, clients, and who are just strangers who were calling and messaging and emailing and saying, hey, this this is where I want to go. Um, you know, tell me more. So we created that closed group. It's not for arguing, but, you know, certainly healthy debate is wide open. But, uh, you know, what we're starting to find is there are a lot more folks who are wanting to practice a regenerative approach to food plotting 
they just don't they don't fully understand. And I do want to throw in this because this is something that you know I hear a lot on the Facebook platforms and other social media platforms is that guys say, yeah, but you know you have that four thousand dollar roller crimper and that twenty thousand dollar grain drill, and you know not all of us can afford that. And you know usually the the, the those who know me know I like to have have fun, kind of like you. And I usually make a comment, well, like listen, you know if you're going to the job site you don't show up with the kid's hammer, you show up with a real hammer, right? And a real drill or a Milwaukee circular saw or whatever, you, you don't go with fake tools. So at some point, if you're gonna get the job done right, you need to bring the right tools to the table. However, I will say we have some guys and girls who don't have drills, they don't have roller crimpers. They're, they're at the scale of using a two by four with some kind of cutting blade on it. It looks like a swing and stepping on their plants to crimp them. And I can tell you the results are the same as running a eight, nine, 10 foot roller crimper and drill through a field. So this can be done at a small scale just because I know someone's gonna bring that up. But yeah, but you know, all the naysayers, um, there's some pretty impressive stuff going on uh, with folks who don't have any of that equipment. Now, if you, I will say if you sell your discs, if you sell your plows, um, you know, if you're aggressive, maybe you sell your, your sprayer as well. But if you sell some of those implements that uh, there's just no need for, you certainly have more resources at your your disposal. So that, I figured I better throw that one in there because that's I hear that often. Well, it's a uh, it's a very interesting topic, and and like I said, make sure you connect with Jason. Uh, online if you're interested in seeing sort of the real world practice and result of this type of food plotting and this type of sort of holistic approach to property management that's where you can see the videos and the pictures um, the explanations as he's actually going about things whether it's on his own farm whether it's with his clients um, around the country and um, you know, maybe I'm the only one who finds it interesting and I'm just weird, but I, I rather suspect that I'm not the only one, Jason. No, so. you, know, you know, two two quick points. Um, the Drop Plant Seed website, we're about to launch a new site. We actually spent a significant amount of time putting a lot of regenerative stuff on there, um, some blends. Again, I, you know, message me from that, read that. If you have any questions asked, you don't have to buy anything. It's just, uh, I, I'm hoping, I've sort of thrown down the gauntlet before, and I really hope the rest of the, the food plot marketing firms kind of follow this trend. I wish they would. Um, you know, when I worked with a few of them, they they would make comments such as I'd never, you know, we would never, these are owners of these seed companies, I'd never get rid of my plow. Um, and I really wish we could change that thought process and, you know, so many of them still think you can't drill multi-species blends, and that's not true at all. But, um, and I had another thought there I wanted to throw out, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm going to cut you off, but it's droptineseed.com. And, uh, and, and that's, it's in the final stages. It's going to be another week or two before it's fully ready to go and we'll be updating that putting a lot of blogging information about this uh this new process of uh, wildlife regenerative ag and uh and if you want to find the group on facebook i'm actually looking it up right now is it going to come up for me 
Regenerative Wildlife Agriculture. Just search for Regenerative Wildlife Agriculture. And and I think you have to request, and if Jason deems you worthy, then you can get in on that, that, right, Jason? All you you have to be is interested. You don't have to be ready to buy anything. Just just interested in learning and uh, obviously leaving leaving the pot shots out of the group. But, you know, I do want to say something here as far as the fact that we need to stop looking at soils as a chemistry experiment. I mentioned that before, and actually I had a star next to that because I wanted to drive that home on this podcast. You know, there's an Australian soil ecologist named Dr. Christine Jones, and I think she really said it best when she said that we're standing on the rooftop of another world, and I'll take it a step further with the fact that many more people are starting to learn, which is if you take a teaspoon, just one teaspoon of healthy soil, there are more living microorganisms in that teaspoon than there are humans on Earth. So why we're not focusing on this biological system below our boots and utilizing and harnessing the power of that force is, is beyond me. But I, I think we're, we're, we need to get on it. Well, well said, my friend. Uh, I appreciate your time, and, and you know, like I said, I know that you could literally talk all day about this, but I've got stuff to do. I know you've got stuff to do, and, and our listeners are probably got a lot to do, and they're like, man, these guys went on for a long time about dirt. So, hey, who knew? Who knew you could talk for an hour and almost 15 minutes about dirt? Well, but, listen, uh, when, we did. When it, can, when it can save you money and attract more and bigger deer, um, you know, and I've got stories of, you know, and, and, and you could, you know, you could call it what you want and say it lacks science and have that reductionist approach. But, you know, I have, I have stories of, of mature bucks that will leave a, a monoculture soybean stand just to get shot on the property that's doing absolutely nothing from a management perspective. And it makes you wonder why are these bucks leaving these perfectly groomed, uh, not bothered sanctuary properties. And, and I can tell you the reason I believe, I'm sure there's a couple, but uh, I think they're, they're seeking these secondary and tertiary compounds because, quite frankly, I think too much soybeans in the gut uh, will cause a lot of gut dysfunction. So they go seek natural or what they were imprinted on. Forages. So if we could identify that, then I think we can probably kill some more deer. Well, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for being with us this, uh, this episode. We're going to have to have you back again before too long because there's just uh, always way more material than we can cover. But uh, wish you the best. With the rest of your growing season here, and and I'm sure, you know, I didn't even pick your brain. I normally like to harass you for uh, information about the giants that I know you have running around on your farm that you never want to tell me about. So I'll have to follow up with you off offline about that. Yeah, exactly. It's a standard line, you know. And my invitation to hunt is lost in the mail once again. My new story is we quit using fertilizer, so they've all gone to the, you know all the other farms around us. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear it, man. I guess you'll have a tough season. Uh, have a great day, and we'll catch up again soon. Hey, thanks again, Christian. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bow hunters. 
pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com. 